the first of which is from Acts. Is that one? Yeah, that's one. Acts 15, verse 36. It's on page 1111 of the Church Bibles. So we're going to start at Acts 15, verse 36, going on to the end of verse 16, verse 15. Page 111. Now it begins with Paul having got to Antioch, where we finished off last week. So today at verse 36, we start off with, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted him in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul had seen the vision. After he'd seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to, Samoth to Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us.
So uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. That's where we've left them. Um, and we read this. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he, he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill, him because, kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they, met, uh, uh, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Uh, then they left. When Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amph Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. 
as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the market place, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they had received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left uh, with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you keep your church Bibles open, we're on page 1113, carrying on from where David left off. Paul is now in Athens, having had to escape from Berea. And we start at verse 16 of chapter 17, page 1113. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day and with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Great. Thank you, Tim. Um, do please keep your Bibles open uh, on that page as I pray for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that these stories are your word to us. Please, Father, teach us now and make a lasting impression on our minds and hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, um, I've got a question for us. Have you ever been talking with someone and you feel like you're speaking different languages? You know what I mean? Sometimes it's a cultural thing, isn't it? I found these examples of uh, stuff that British people say, what people from other countries hear, and what British people actually mean. So, for example, British people say, I hear what you're saying. Other people hear, they accept my point of view. British people mean, I totally disagree. <laughs> or this one here, British people say, that's a very brave proposal which is understood to mean they think I have courage. What they mean is, you are insane. <laughs> Another one, British people say, I'm sure it's my fault. And people think, why do they think it's their fault? And they mean, it's your fault. <laughs> one more, British people say, I might join you later. And people take that to mean, they'll probably drop in soon. When what they mean is, I'm not leaving the house today unless it's on fire. <laughs> Can you relate to that? There are other times, aren't there, when you talk to someone and it's like you're speaking different languages. When someone's studying a PhD and you ask them, what's your PhD about? That's a, a dangerous one in Cambridge. 
they start telling you and you smile and nod, but you have no idea what they're talking about. Might as well be a different language. I get that at home. Um, my wife is a GP and when she talks to other doctors, I'm sure they can have a very easy conversation about complex medical things because they have a shared understanding about medicine. I do not have that understanding. And so when Hannah talks to me about medical things, I have to ask her to stop every 10 seconds to explain something to me. It's very humbling. I don't know, maybe you get something similar at school or at university. You're reading a book and you just don't get it. Might as well be in a different language. And sometimes people can't understand each other because they just have totally different perspectives on life. You know, imagine a person who thinks life is about serving your community. And then another person who thinks life is about following your dreams. Well, if those two people have a discussion, they'll probably feel like they're speaking completely different languages. They don't have common ground. Probably think the other one's talking nonsense. And that feeling we're speaking different languages, I wonder if you've ever felt that with the Christian faith. Maybe you can remember having a conversation about what Christians believe, either sharing what Christians believe or hearing what Christians believe. And uh, it was like you were speaking different languages. You know, here's this person I'm talking to about the Christian faith, and nothing's going in. Jesus makes no sense. Or here's this person sharing the Christian faith with me, and I have no idea what they're on about. It's nonsense. Gobbledygook. They might as well be speaking a different language. Can we relate to that? Well, that's very similar to what this story records happening in Athens 2,000 years ago. This guy, Paul, he's a kind of official spokesman for the Christian faith. And Paul gets talking with some philosophers. He tells them what Christians believe, the news about Jesus, his death, his resurrection. It's probably the first time they've heard any of this stuff. And here's their response. What is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. Don't you love that? What is this babbler trying to say? They don't get it. The Christian message sounds like nonsense. Paul might as well be speaking a different language. But they are curious. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus, which was a kind of council. And notice, they don't know what Paul's on about, but they do want to know. May we know what this new teaching is you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. They're curious. They don't get it. But they sense there's something here, and they want to know what it is. What's the way forward in that situation? What's going to be helpful for the curious person? Well, notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't just keep repeating the Christian message at them, talking about Jesus, his death for our forgiveness, his resurrection. Now, they don't understand that. If Paul did that, he'd be like the uh, stereotypical British person who goes on holiday to France. And uh, when a French person doesn't understand them, they keep talking in English just more loudly. It's not helpful. What Paul does is he recognizes the language gap. He recognizes 
We're not understanding each other. So let's take a step back and look at some foundations, some essential background you have to have for the Christian message to make sense. Because the Christian message comes with background, and we need to get clear on it for the message to make sense. So for people who don't get the Christian faith, but who are curious, Paul says, take a step back and rethink some essentials. Take a step back and think about these three questions. Who is God? Who are we? Where is everything going? I wonder how you'd answer those. They're quite big, aren't they? We, uh, we don't really think about those questions day to day as we get on with working and shopping and seeing friends and getting sick and paying the bills. But we do all have answers to them. Some people have very clear answers. Who's God? Well, he's a made-up fairy tale. Who are we? We're just clever animals um, here by accident and who end up in a box. Where's everything going? Well, one day it'll all be gone. Maybe those are your answers. Some of us look at those questions and our answer is just, I don't know. I can't know. Well, Paul wants to say, you might not know, but you can know. That's what he's saying to these people in Athens. He sees they have an altar to an unknown God. It's funny, isn't it? Maybe they were afraid they'd missed out a God and they wanted to cover their bases. Or maybe it used to have a name on it, but it's faded away over the years. But what they don't know, Paul says, you can know. Us here, we don't have to be stuck not knowing the answers to these questions. We can know. So here's the first essential to rethink. Who is God? Verse 24, Paul says, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And verse 27, he is not far from any one of us. Both Lord of everything and not far from anyone. Now, what Paul says there is radical. Because throughout history, most ideas of God have used one of those to cancel out the other. Some people have said, yes, God is Lord of everything, all right, but he's far from us. He's too big to care about little you and me. Doesn't get involved in our lives. He's a distant God. That's what some people have said. Other people have said, no, God is near us, but that's because he's not Lord of everything. He is everything. You're God. I'm God. Everything is God. That's what other people have said. Well, those are very different views of God, aren't they? But notice what they have in common. If God is distant, we can't know him. He's too far away. And if God is everything, we can't know him. There's no him to know. With those goals, relationship is impossible. Paul's God is radically different. He is the personal maker of heaven and earth. And he's not far from anything he's made, including 
you and me. We can know him. God made us so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Relationship is possible with this God. Here's something else Paul says about him. This God is incredibly generous. Um, let me make a confession. When I'm generous, there's often selfishness mixed in. You know, I give hoping that I'll get something from it. And verse 25, I think it's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's about how different God's generosity is. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying God needs nothing and he gives everything. So much we could dig into here. But here's one thing. God did not make us to get something from us. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us one bit. God doesn't need anything. He's always been entirely complete. And if God had never made us, he'd be just as complete without us. So if God doesn't need us, why do he make us? Pure generosity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly unnecessary creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. God is like a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes them to be, that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Here is love. God doesn't need us, and he gives us everything. That's the first essential to rethink. Who's God? Here's the second. Who are we? Uh, I'm sure you've visited an organization's website, maybe Christchurch's website, and there's a page on there um, about us, who we are. Well, imagine humanity had its own website with that page about us, who we are. I think it would say lots of stuff, but top of the page should be this. We are God's offspring. That's a massive thing for Paul to say to these people. But actually, Paul's borrowing it from some of their poets. Uh, verse 28, poets who aren't Christians, but who've stumbled onto this truth. Maybe they were amazed at what human beings can do. You know, the amazing art and technology and uh, culture humans are capable of. Where does that come from? Maybe they had a sense of the worth of human beings, that even people who aren't capable of that amazing stuff are just as valuable as anyone else. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from this. Every human being is God's offspring, made by him. That gives every human great dignity. And it also gives us great responsibility. Imagine there's someone who needs a new kidney to survive. Without a new kidney, they're dead. Thankfully, a kind person gives them a kidney that they need, and they live. 
and they wake up each day thinking to themselves, I owe my life to another. I'm only here because of them. Well, that's how we should think as God's offspring. I owe my life to another. I'm only here because of him. I only exist this morning by God's gift. In him we live and move and have our being. I owe everything to him because I didn't make myself. I'm God's offspring. One more essential to rethink. Where is everything going? Common today, isn't it, to see history as a story without an author. You know, stuff just happens. Chaos rules. But according to Paul, the story does have an author who's marked out times and places for people across the whole world. Uh, it's a little cheesy, but history is his story. And there's lots we don't know. But the author has told us where the story's headed. Verse 31. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the final essential. People may escape justice in this life, but they won't in the end. God has set a day for judgment. Now, that may be a comforting thought to us. But when Paul spoke to the curious, his intention wasn't to comfort them. Paul wanted them to see the urgent necessity of changing their thinking. Because this rethink is essential. See, these clever philosophers in Athens, they needed to recognize they got something very wrong. It's what the Bible calls idolatry, which is when we swap the real God for a God we've made up. It's what Paul noticed when he looked around the city, idolatry, and it's the challenge he gives them in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to rethink. Now, we might think that has nothing to say to us. You know, we don't have gold or silver idol statues in our houses. But idols, they're not just metal images. They're mental images, inventing a God in my mind. When people say stuff like, oh, I, I like to think of God like this, or um, I believe we can all have our own idea of God, well, that's just mental idolatry, swapping the real God for a God I've made up in my head. It could be unmaking God too, airbrushing him out of the picture. And whatever form our idolatry takes, it's wrong to treat the God who made us like a lump of Play-Doh that we can reshape. It's wrong. God's offspring taking our maker and remaking him, it's not okay. Uh, he won't stand for it. He will hold us accountable, Paul says. Justice will be done. See, Paul is saying a rethink is essential 
We have to recognize we've got this wrong. And if we do, here's what will happen by God's grace. The message about Jesus, which sounded like a different language, will become the only language that makes sense. With this background in place, we'll see the news of a forgiving Savior as good news, the best news in the world for people like us. I wonder if you're curious and you'd like to hear more, like those people in verse 32, come back, come chat. Chat with your Christian friends. I've given us some background to the Christian message. Maybe the message itself will make a bit more sense now. And if, like most of us, I imagine, you're believing, like the people in verse 34, who hear Paul, and they're convinced. Well, next time you talk to someone curious, and Jesus sounds like gobbledygook to them, why not take a page from Paul's book and step back and think through some essentials together? Well, um, let me pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're not an unknown God, that we can know you. Father, thank you for the patience of people like Paul. I'm sure we can maybe think of people in our lives who've stepped back and thought through essentials with us. Please help us, Lord, if we're believing, to be those people. And Father, please help us wherever we're at to recognize the problem of idolatry in our minds and hearts and to keep coming back to you as you've revealed yourself in Jesus. And we thank you so much for the great news the gospel is of forgiveness and restoration. Uh, we praise you, Lord. Amen.